Hi, I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. As Hitler's army advanced through Western Europe in the spring of 1940, Democratic President Franklin D. Roosevelt was faced with an extremely serious situation. He was keenly aware of the need for the United States to confront global fascism, yet he also knew the overwhelming sentiment of the American people at that time was one of isolationism. As a result of the horrific losses suffered during the country's involvement in World War I, most Americans feared entanglement in another foreign war. In this episode of Your History, Your Story, we will be speaking with author Peter Schinkel about his recently released book, Uniting America, How FDR and Henry Stimson Brought Democrats and Republicans Together to Win World War II. Peter will tell the story of how FDR took huge political risks by nominating two prominent Republicans to the positions of Secretary of War and Secretary of the Navy in order to unite the country in a concerted effort to defeat the enemies of freedom and democracy. I'd now like to welcome Peter Schinkel to our show. Welcome, Peter. Hello, James. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm really glad that you're on our show because we are going to talk about your recently released book, Uniting America, How FDR and Henry Stimson Brought Democrats and Republicans Together to Win World War II. I'll tell you, I'm very much interested in World War II. Both my parents were in World War II, and it's just a topic that fascinates me. But the book just delves into such fascinating detail of the interaction of primarily the two main characters, Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Henry Stimson. But before we start talking about the book, I want to talk about the author. I want to talk about you. Peter, Can you tell us about your background and how you got into journalism? And then eventually, how did you get into writing? Certainly, James, I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, and I attended the University of Virginia. And there, my field of study was Russian language and literature, although I did take a little bit of journalism, and I loved working on the school newspaper a little bit. But It was only years later, after a stint of working as a Russian translator for the U.S. government and some news organizations, including CNN and NBC, um, that I went into the field of journalism. And I ended up working at daily newspapers, including uh, the Baton Rouge Advocate, and then for a number of years, uh, six years, at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch back in my hometown. And um, at that point, I did a little zigzag in my career path. And I uh, went to business school and I became a a marketing manager at a heavy industrial construction company. But I still had my love for books and and history and writing. So around uh, 2008, I began work on on a project, which was a biography of my great uncle who had worked very closely with President Eisenhower. And that would eventually become uh, Ike's Mystery Man, which was published in 2018. It was all about how my great uncle um, was a closeted homosexual who survived the astonishingly 
homophobic and um, repressive era of the 1950s in Washington with just a remarkable career working to develop the National Security Council into the preeminent body for determining national security policy of the United States that it is today. And um, that book led me directly to my most recent book. Okay, so let's just go back a bit as far as your interest in history. Did that sort of just bloom simultaneously as you were in journalism? Was, were there any particular periods of history that interested you other than the World War II, say, to the Cold War era? You know, I would say I'm sort of a general history reader. I, I don't think I have any real focal points for my interest in history, but those would evolve as you, as you suggest through my work as a journalist. Right, right. So let's talk about your book. Let's start talking about, well, let's start with the two main characters, FDR. Tell us a little bit about his background that brought him to the presidency, just sort of a general flow of who he was. And, you know, because I want to end up sort of comparing the two men a bit. Mm -hmm. Well, FDR, of course, uh, grew up in, uh, in a background of enormous multi-generational wealth as the scion of the, the Roosevelt, one branch of the Roosevelt family in New York State as a young man. However, he, although his father was a Democrat, um, but one of his cousins was, of course, Theodore Roosevelt, mm -hmm. a Republican. And he began to idolize his cousin, Theodore Roosevelt. And through his years as a young man in Harvard, he began to visualize a career as a political leader in the United States. But he retained his loyalty to the Democratic Party. Um, and eventually, in 1910, he ran for a state Senate seat near Hyde Park, New York, um, his hometown, and he won. And as I describe in this book, uh, that's the same election when Henry Stimson was defeated in his bid to become governor of New York State. That's kind of the, the background of FDR's rise to politics in the United States began in that fashion. And um, eventually, of course, he would be elected governor of New York. And as the Great Depression hit, he began seeking solutions for average Americans, unemployed Americans. And that was a message that resonated tremendously with American people when he ultimately ran for the presidency in 1932. Yes, so the 30s, uh, so he's coming in at a very critical time. So the stock market crashed during the Hoover administration, 1929. So. Roosevelt comes in, uh, he's elected in 32, and he's facing this enormous at-home situation to deal with. So th that brings us up to the presidency for FDR. Tell us about the other main character of your book, Henry Stimson. Can you give us his background? Henry Stimson was born in 1867, so he was about 15 years older than FDR. He was a student at Yale University, and then he attended Harvard Law School and graduated from Harvard. From his earliest years, he was a Republican and um, he took an interest in politics, but he didn't enter the field of politics for a number of years until later in his career. He stayed focused on the practice of law, but in his, the law firm that he was working for 
was associated with Theodore Roosevelt, had, had represented Theodore Roosevelt, and he began to have a relationship with Roosevelt. And uh, eventually, TR appointed him U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York in Manhattan. And Simpson played a key role in carrying out TR's antitrust programs. Mm -hmm. um, eventually, Stimson would run for governor in that race we mentioned earlier, the 1910 race. Teddy Roosevelt would go around New York State campaigning for him, but Stimson failed to win. It was a midterm election, and there was a Republican president, uh, Taft, in the White House, and the Republicans took it on the chin in that election, and Stimson lost. Ultimately, Taft would make Stimson his Secretary of War, and that would be the first time that Stimson would serve as Secretary of War. Later, he continued in his law practice, and he was called upon by President Coolidge to handle some international disputes, particularly in Nicaragua, where there was a, a violent civil war underway, and uh, Stimson managed to negotiate a peace that led to elections in that country. And in 1929, President Hoover named Stimson his Secretary of State. So uh, Stimson would be Secretary of State all the way through the Hoover administration. And um, it would be as Secretary of State that he would have his first meeting with FDR in January of 1933. So remarkably, these two men were pillars of the political world in New York for the first 30 years of the, of the 20th century, and they had never met. Of course, they were on opposing sides of the aisle. But on the other hand, they had a lot in common. They both were great admirers of Theodore Roosevelt, for example, but they had never met. And um, eventually, and, and this is the opening scene of my book, where uh, Stimson and Roosevelt meet on January 9, 1933, and they have a very amicable and productive conversation in which Stimson manages to convince FDR to maintain Stimson's policy, the so-called Stimson doctrine of not, recommend, or not recognizing Japan's seizure of Manchuria. So that was sort of the, the preamble to the relationship between these two men. Excellent. Uh, so now, now these two men have met. They're from opposing parties, but they have some things in common as well. Let's talk about the world scene at the time that they're meeting. You're talking the 30s. And eventually, you know, this leads us to 1940, when they actually come together, really for a common cause. Tell us what's going on. You mentioned about Japan. What was going on with Japan? And then also what was going on in Europe at this time? So Japan at this time is under control of nationalist elements who wish to expand the empire. And they are pushing the emperor to do that. And the emperor is accommodating them and accommodating the nationalist urges of Japan. Of course, Korea has been subsumed by Japanese forces since for decades by this point, by the time 1932 and 33. And Japan will soon launch a puppet state 
in seized part, realm of northern China, um, Manchuria. The puppet state is called Manchukuo, and the United States refuses to recognize that. Meanwhile, it's very clear that Japan intends to expand its presence in China and elsewhere in Southeast Asia. So in Germany, Hitler is on the verge of rising to power, seizing power after years of threatening to take control. And in Italy, uh, of course, Mussolini has been in power throughout the 1920s. The Soviet Union, of course, is a, a communist state that has been in existence since 1917. So there are a lot of forces against democracy aligning and, and accumulating at this time. And it's a very concerning time in, in the world. Yes, uh, it certainly is. And uh, in Europe, obviously, people are getting pretty nervous about what's going on in Europe and as well as in Asia with the Japanese uh, imperialism starting to go on the move. Let's talk about the attitude, the general attitude in the United States. What was that during the time that FDR first took office in 1933? I guess it was when he actually took office. You know, uh, 115,000 Americans died in the First World War, and there was a very strong reaction in the United States to that. Many Americans opposed entering additional wars. They believed that was an unnecessary war. Um, they hated war. They didn't want to send their sons off to war. And that was compounded by the fact that many perceived um, the banks and other financial interests to have profited from the war. Uh, J.P. Morgan was hauled before Congress and forced to testify about his profits from arms manufacturing. So uh, there was a very strong isolationist movement in the United States that opposed entry into new wars and particularly had a, a concern that the Europeans appeared to be headed for a new war and um, they wanted no part of it. Well, you, you can't argue with that. When you think of the United States came into World War I in 1917, so in just maybe a little over a year, 115,000 Americans were lost. So you certainly understand that sentiment. So politically, if, if FDR would, would come in as president and start to say, hey, we got to get involved over there and, and stop what's going on, that it wouldn't bode well for him politically at that time, would you say? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And he made a choice to, while he was concerned about democracy and the future of democracy, and that was a conversation that he had repeatedly with Henry Stimson in the early 30s, he clearly made a choice to accommodate or appease the isolationist forces in the United States. And they were very large. It was a very widespread sentiment. And so when members of Congress in 1936 passed the Neutrality Act, uh, which required the United States to maintain a position of neutrality if a war broke out, FDR signed it. And he also signed two extensions of that act. So he very much responded in, in a way of concluding that he could not fight that battle, at least not at that time. Now, with regard to the political parties during the 30s, the Republicans and Democrats, were there isolationists on both sides? 
of the aisle? Yes, yes, there were, absolutely. And that was part of the tricky math for FDR. Uh, he would have to, to contend with that. So when the uh, Second World War broke out in September of 1939 with Germany's invasion of Poland, the United States found itself in a position where because of the Neutrality Act, it could not send weapons to the British, who were the, the allies of the Poles, or, or to the French or any other parties in the conflict. So the, the Neutrality Act really bound the hands of the United States in responding to Hitler's aggression. Can you imagine if, for example, today, in today's world, if Putin invades a, a democratic ally of the United States, such as Ukraine, but there's a law in the book that says the United States can't send any weapons to Ukraine. Mm -hmm. um, I think we would agree that um, that would be a, a, a problem, a, a hindrance on our foreign policy. Uh, whether it makes sense to send the weapons is another issue, but it's at least a, a stricture on it. And um, Henry Stimson in, in the 30s argued publicly against the Neutrality Act. Um, he likened it to playing poker with your hand on the table while all the other players had their hands held close to their vest. Mm -hmm. So Stimson was a voice, a very prominent voice, having been the Republican Secretary of State under FDR's most recent, um, or his, his Republican predecessor, who was opposed to isolationism, who was opposed to the Neutrality Act. So in your book, it, you build up the excitement about this, but there starts to become a time where Roosevelt is now recognizing the uh, Japanese imperial threat, the Adolf Hitler, the fascist threat in Europe as a threat to our democracy in the United States, as opposed to maybe the views of many isolationists who think, hey, it's their war, we're fine, it's not on our shores. So at what point do you feel FDR started to to feel the necessity to walk away from the neutrality stance? Well, um, certainly he decided in early September uh, of 1939, after the Nazi invasion of Poland, that the Neutrality Act itself needed to go. As he said, um, I regret that Congress passed this act. I regret equally that I signed it. And uh, it was repealed. And U.S. arms began flowing to Great Britain. So certainly he began to step away from the Neutrality Act itself at that point. <laughs> now, as in terms of stepping back from isolationism, the sort of general sentiment, I think that had begun um, sometime earlier. It's hard to judge, though, because publicly he maintained a position of supporting neutrality, the very embodiment of isolationism. So it's really hard to, to identify a point at which he started to back away from isolationism. He starts to see, after September 1939, he started increasingly seeing the, the threat. Um, and he started getting really SOS calls from Winston Churchill in Great Britain. Tell us about when the time came where Franklin Roosevelt reached across to the Republicans, to key Republicans, 
that being one of which being Henry Stimson and also Frank Knox, two key uh, Republicans. When he did that and what was the timing of that? Frank Knox was a fascinating character because he had been the Republican vice presidential nominee in 1936, and he had been a severe critic of the New Deal. But he also, as a Republican, was a strong supporter of Teddy Roosevelt, and he um, also had a deep concern about the fate of democracy in the world and the need to support America's allies to defend democracy. So in December of 1939, not long after the Neutrality Act was revised um, and reversed, Knox met with FDR and they began to talk about the idea of bringing a Republican into the cabinet. But they quickly agreed that it would be a little premature to, to bring uh, Republicans into the cabinet right away because it would look like a desperate stratagem, a political maneuver rather than a national necessity. Right. So they held off. They also uh, raised the idea of having two Republicans join the cabinet because having just one seemed to make it look more like just a personal choice, whereas two sort of sends a message that it's a, a broader movement. But no decision was made on who that second Republican would be. Interestingly, Stimson was at this time, he was up there in years, he was more than 70 years old, and there may have been hesitation to bring him in because of his age. Mm -hmm. Now, ultimately, Stimson, who was a, a lifelong outdoorsman and um, very healthy, would outlive both Knox and FDR. At that time, he was not mentioned, but in April, the Nazis uh, invaded uh, Norway uh, and Denmark, and then on May 10, 1940, came the invasion of Belgium, the Netherlands, and France, and immediately FDR began thinking over this entire process of who to bring into the cabinet, and he concluded, uh, he began to think that he was, it was time that the, that the conditions had changed and bringing Republicans into the cabinet would no longer look like a political stratagem, but it would look like something necessary to bring about national unity. And eventually on June 20, as France was preparing to surrender to the Germans, he announced that he was gonna make Henry Stimson the Secretary of War and Frank Knox the Secretary of the Navy. This is such a crazy period because I'm thinking about what are the reactions of uh, the other other Democrats and also other Republicans. 1940, there was another election that took place and Roosevelt was running against Wendell Wilkie. So how did that election go and how did it sort of foretell how the Republicans and the Democrats were going to really be starting to work together within the administration to prepare for and eventually fight a war together? Mm -hmm. Well, one thing to know about that election, which is quite fascinating, of course, is that um, FDR was very cognizant of the fact that the Republican National Convention was approaching in June 
And in fact, he had a conversation uh, with Knox about the timing of that appointment, uh, of his appointment vis-a-vis the National Convention. Knox wanted to go to the Republican National Convention and he supported Wilkie. Wendell Wilkie was the Republican who was the least isolationist among all the Republican candidates. Mm -hmm. Robert Taft of Ohio, the Senator from Ohio was the most isolationist candidate joined closely by Senator Arthur Vandenberg of Michigan, but uh, Taft was a more prominent candidate. And um, FDR, as I said, was, was very concerned about the, the upcoming Republican convention. He had a conversation with Frank Knox about whether Knox should go to the convention first and then be appointed, or should he be appointed before the convention? He chose to appoint Stimson and Knox before the convention, which sort of threw a bomb into the Republican National Convention. Suddenly you have this huge uproar over two prominent Republicans switching to join FDR's administration, lending credence to the notion that Republicans should join with a Democratic president in supporting the allies. So eventually in the Republican National Convention, which takes place just days later, Wendell Wilkie, who is the the most internationalist of the Republican candidates, emerges as the nominee. Then in the summer of 1940, after Wilkie's nominated, you have the European war unfolding, even as Stimson and Knox are trying to build up the U.S. armed forces and to help the allies defend themselves. Mm -hmm. So there were two particularly important elements there that they were focused on. One was the draft. And um, this was a very risky effort for FDR at this time. Isolationism still controlled the country. And FDR was concerned, but he, but he believed a draft was necessary. But many Americans would oppose a draft and did oppose a draft. Ultimately, Stimson and Knox, uh, but Stimson in particular, led the push to pass the draft legislation. Another element of, this, of their program at this time was to send 50 old US destroyers to the British. And one of the fascinating elements that I found about this story is that Stimson, who had a prior relationship with Wendell Wilkie, just as Knox did, contacted Wilkie and sent him War Department documents about the conflict in uh, Europe as part of an effort to get Wilkie not to attack FDR on the issues of the draft and sending the destroyers to the British. So this is sort of a remarkable behind the scenes dealing between the Republicans, which you could imagine would have caused an uproar if it had come out in its day, but it never emerged. And um, Wilkie actually abided those requests And Stimson was extremely grateful to him for that. And this laid the groundwork for Stimson to try to bring Wilkie into an alliance with FDR. He meets with him and talks with him and and convinces him to meet with FDR and then to expand into a, a larger relationship with Roosevelt afterwards. That is so fascinating, Peter. 
I almost would like to see Wilkie's name get on the front cover too, because he was, he really, uh, it was really amazing because you started seeing now Roosevelt defeated Wilkie in 1940, but what you see is uh, national welfare going ahead of party politics here. You're really seeing it in an organized way. And, you know, it was a careful balance. It looked like the FDR administration was, you had to worry about votes, but you're aligning yourself with the security of the country and bringing key people in from across the aisle to help undergird the real safety of our country, a safety that some people weren't maybe seeing yet. They, people were still thinking, hey, let's just stay here. We're safe. We're over here. It's not happening to us. Yet these men were seeing this real threat that was uh, on two fronts that was developing. So it's an incredible period. I mean, it's all in the book. It's so it's so wonderful the way you roll the whole thing out. The research that you did is amazing. But let's just sort of fast forward and say, okay. So I now just add one thought there. Go for it. Well, I was just going to say it's actually fascinating that so we're now eighteen months before Pearl Harbor, mm -hmm. and I think we can agree. Uh, most people would say that it would be widely expected for Americans of both parties to pull together after Pearl Harbor. Yes, that makes sense. But the appointments of Stimson and Knox happened 18 months before Pearl Harbor. At this time, isolationism is still riding high. Charles Lindbergh and America First are, are you know, still very active. And the national debate is, is very heated at this time. So beyond Stimson and Knox, however, other Republicans were beginning to support FDR in an increasing, increasingly obvious way. For example, Nelson Rockefeller, the uh, grandson of John D. Rockefeller, joined the State Department. William Donovan, who at one point had been an assistant attorney general, a prominent Republican in New York State and a World War I hero soon began supporting FDR. So it's kind of fascinating to see the division in the Republican Party as they began to break away from the dominant isolationist philosophy. Yes, definitely. And uh, as you said, Pearl Harbor made it pretty easy for people to come on, come on board and say, hey, yeah, we've, we've got a really dangerous enemy. We've got two dangerous enemies, three actually, that we're fighting. But this is all the time leading up. But there were you know, people like Stimson who they saw the threat way before other people saw it and that Roosevelt would bring in you know, a Republican, but also a Republican who had maybe a less than popular understanding of the threat to our country. And then, of course, to talk about building up the military, Stimson was was very key in that, very unpopular. And you know, it's sort of saying, hey, we're getting ready for war here. You don't just build up, massively build up your military because you just want to have a big military. You There were reasons behind it. So let's talk about after Pearl Harbor is bombed. How does this administration with Republicans and Democrats working together in the war effort, we'll talk about the war effort specifically, how did it work? Where did it succeed the most? And where did it fall short? Perhaps the greatest success story for the administration is the Land-Lease Act, 
which was a huge political fight in Congress because uh, it was asking for a vast amount of spending and it was giving, it would give the War Department tremendous latitude in, and the Navy in deciding where the, the weapons that the government was gonna buy should be deployed, including sending them to our allies. And it turns out that Stimson and Knox working with Wilkie would really lead the, the arguments in support of this legislation on behalf of FDR. So you have the, the three prominent Republicans heading up to Capitol Hill and testifying in support of land lease. It's just an astonishing, astonishing picture. I don't think you'd see something like that in Washington today, but you, you know, you might. I mean, there are things like it, but it's just such a, a dramatic picture at that moment. So I do think that in terms of enhancement of the military, that was certainly a, a dramatic success. It was um, passed in early 1941, and it paved the way for the success of the United States in the war. It's important to think about because this is pre, those things, the Lend-Lease and building up the military was pre-Pearl Harbor. So it was even more of a challenge you know, then after Pearl Harbor, obviously a huge, huge right. challenge. So the fact that those were two high points really says a lot for those, those individuals. It really does. Yeah, absolutely. And there was lots of heat and lots of arguments, very ferocious criticism of them, which I detail in the book uh, in Congress. And the votes were not, you know, um, they were, they were close. They were close votes. Um, and they did need that bipartisan margin, but ultimately they it passed, and the United States began to be what FDR called the arsenal of democracy. Mm. You asked about their failing, any failings in building up the military. I would only say that you know one of the issues I explore is uh, the decision not to desegregate the armed forces and to bring African-Americans into the United States military in a way that was just and unsegregated. <laughs> they, they, Stimson chose not to do that, and FDR did not push the issue. Some of Stimson's diary entries reflect a racist attitude. However, Stimson considered himself to be an old-line Republican from an abolitionist family. Mm -hmm. And um, he would point out that he brought African-Americans into the military in a percentage equal to their overall representation in the US population. That was his idea of how he could meet the demands of African-Americans to be participants in the US defense effort. He also feared violence and turmoil in the U.S. Army if you were to try to undertake desegregation. As Thurgood Marshall, who was then a, an attorney for the NAACP, had urged him to do. But what's interesting is that a year later, um, Stimson will play a key role in FDR's decision to create the Fair Employment Practices Committee, or FEPC, which is focused on desegregating all the war industries. So there is a huge flow of money into industries making planes and tanks and ships 
and all the material necessary for war, those industries would now have to be desegregated. But in terms of failure, I think failure to use and to embrace the Black contribution to the armed forces was certainly one thing that could be cited. Right. And, I, and you talk about it in the book uh, about the Japanese internment camps as well. There was a fear, particularly on the West Coast, that there'd be some sabotage of military uh, sites. And uh, the FDR administration, I think uh, Stimson supported it as well, was to create these camps to put individuals of Japanese descent in there and Certainly, I, I think in, in retrospect, we look back at that at how what a terrible thing that really was. But I don't know what your thoughts are on that. I know you talk a great deal about it in the book as well. Yes. Well, you know, I try to explore how Stimson and FDR debated that subject. Mm -hmm. um, Stimson at one point says it will make a great hole in our constitutional system. Right. Stimson was definitely aware of the constitutional violation that was going on. Uh, and FDR had for quite a while been advancing concerns about sabotage and pushing them to Stimson. It seems like um, FDR in some ways is, is more eager to do this than Stimson is. Mm -hmm. But Stimson agrees to do it and he doesn't get to get any special consideration because he did it and ultimately these would be recognized as a tremendous stain on American democracy. The, a Supreme Court ruling in 1944 would partially reverse the internment order, but it still remains a stain on the effort of these two men to defend democracy. Yeah, and on a, on a better note, the topic of women in the military, there were some advancements made in that area I know Stimson and, and Roosevelt made some advancements in that area. Could you talk briefly about that? Certainly. Uh, well, uh, in early 1941, Representative Edith Norse Rogers, who was the first female representative in Congress from the Northeast of the United States, she's a congresswoman from Massachusetts, had proposed a bill that would create the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps, or WAC. And after Pearl Harbor, the push to create this organization gathered steam. Women from around the country wrote Representative Rogers, Henry Stimson, and General Marshall, General George C. Marshall, the Army Chief of Staff, supported creation of the WAC. And the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps um, was passed and signed into law. And it really dramatically changed the place of American women in the military. And soon after that, uh, legislation would be passed creating similar women's auxiliary corps in the Navy, the Coast Guard, and other services. So um, this was an era of, in which the, the roles for women dramatically changed. And um, a lot of times it was through bipartisan legislation with Republicans leading the way or joining the effort. So, uh, for example, Representative Rogers was a Republican. So in those days, the Republican Party had a lot of, uh, of a uh, reformist elements in them. So that sort of set the stage for further advancements of women in later years. But 
these wartime years were a remarkable period of change. Yeah, definitely. And I wanted to just sort of briefly go through it, but as far as the actual execution of the war and dealing with our allies, uh, with Churchill specifically and strategy and things like that, it looked as if Stimson was really hands-on in that. And as a matter of fact, in preparing for this, this interview, I, I looked at some YouTubes and I saw some films of Stimson actually out, you know, over in Europe and looking at uh, battlefields and meeting with the generals. I mean, he was, he was in his seventies, but he was a real hands-on sort of a secretary of war, wasn't he? He was. In fact, um, I mean, he was a fierce believer in the push to invade France across the English Channel from Great Britain. That had led to a lot of disputes with Winston Churchill, who was very worried that that would be uh, a recipe for failure. And I go quite at length describing the battles between um, Stimson and Churchill. And in fact, uh, in July of 1943, Stimson travels to London and has a tete-a-tete with Churchill and Churchill cites his concern about corpses in the English Channel. Mm. And um, Stimson rejects that idea and, and says that, you know, we're not going to win this war if we, we start talking about corpses in the Channel. And when Stimson gets back to Washington, he meets with FDR and he says that he doesn't think that that the British have what it takes to lead the cross-channel invasion. He says that the shadows of Dunkirk and Passchendaele still hang too heavily over these leaders. Mm. And he urges FDR to appoint an American, to push for an American commander to lead D-Day. We so often now have had it drummed in our heads for so many years that Eisenhower was the great leader of D-Day. Well, that was not the way it was supposed to be. It was originally planned for a British commander to lead D-Day, to be the overall supreme allied commander. But when Stimson met with FDR in July of 1943, he pushed for this, pushed for General Marshall to be named the supreme commander. FDR agreed to Stimson's surprise. At this point, <laughs> he was actually quite shocked because there had been quite a bit of debate between the two men over military strategy. And he was extremely happy that FDR agreed with this. FDR ultimately pushed for it, raised the issue with Churchill later, and Churchill agreed that it should be Marshall mm -hmm. to lead the Allied invasion. But ultimately, when FDR raised it with General Marshall, General Marshall expressed no opinion. He said, I will, I will serve where you wish me to serve. And FDR had become so accustomed to having uh, Marshall at his elbow, as, as Stimson put it, in Washington, dealing with Congress, running the War Department. Um, he couldn't bear to lose him. So FDR decided that he would make Eisenhower the supreme allied commander over the invasion. Wow, these decisions that were made, when you think of the impact of these decisions. It's how critical a role the Republican Stimson played working with the Democratic president. And they had a remarkably close relationship. 
they had a lot of arguments and a lot of disagreements and they worked through them all. And they reverted to humor quite a bit. There was a lot of difficult debates that they had. And um, interestingly, I think part of the recipe for success here was that FDR tolerated Stimson's disagreements. Uh, he didn't fire him just because they disagreed on certain policy matters. He let Stimson run the War Department in often how he wanted, making appointments that he wanted within limits. There were a few times when FDR put his foot down, but um, there was a remarkable willingness by FDR to tolerate Stimson's decision-making latitude. Yeah, and that is so key. I mean, that's really core of this book is really about not perfect things, but what great things can happen with, with a team that is willing to put aside you know, party loyalties for the best interests of this country. They were all willing to just keep working together to find the solution. And you really take the reader through it so well. It's so fascinating. But just let's fast forward to uh, the time when FDR passes away suddenly uh, in 1945. The war in Europe is all but over. It's not quite over yet, but it's all but over. But Japan is still fighting. And you've got a new chief in the White House. You've got Harry Truman. Harry Truman is kind of a newbie to this whole dynamic of Republican-Democrat working together into the FDR administration. How did FDR's passing away help or hinder the administration's execution of what was left of the war? Well, I think it's one of the fascinating elements of the relationship between the new president, Harry Truman, and his Republican Secretary of War, Henry Stimson, is that they had actually had clashes prior to this. Truman was known for his investigations of wartime contracts, military contracts, looking for corruption and waste. And um, they particularly clashed over a project to build a refinery in Canada to resupply oil and gas to U.S. forces in Alaska. Stimson noted in his diary that he didn't think of Truman as a trustworthy person. Mm. So when FDR dies, April 12, 1945, Stimson goes to the White House. Truman is there. And almost uh, after the swearing-in ceremony in the cabinet room, Stimson pulls the president aside and tells him that the United States is working on an explosive of unimaginable power. And if you can imagine, at this point, Truman has never been told about the atomic bomb. Wow. Neither Stimson nor FDR ever told the vice president that this weapon was about to be developed. Mm. So this was huge news, of course, <laughs> to the president. Oh, you um, think? <laughs> yeah. So it, it raised the situation now, was this new Democratic president going to be able to carry forward the bipartisanship that FDR had made the centerpiece of his administration during the war years? And um, Truman gave at least a partial answer to that quickly. 
by stating that he wanted Stimson to remain in his post, but he also began to turn increasingly for information about the bomb to the man he would name his Secretary of State, James Burns of South Carolina, who had been in the Senate with Truman a number of years earlier. So their, their relationship, that is the relationship between Truman and Burns, will dominate the decision-making that Truman makes on um, whether to drop the bomb, when to drop the bomb. And what I try to do is focus on how these three men navigated their, the, the, this end game period of the war in uh, June, July, and August of 1945. The key element there is that Henry Stimson believed that the United States should let Japan surrender and offer it the condition of keeping its emperor. Truman and Burns did not believe in letting the Japanese keep their emperor. They thought that surrender should only be unconditional. And um, they rejected Stimson's requirement. And um, ultimately, the bomb was, of course, dropped on Hiroshima on August 6th and Nagasaki on, on August 9th. So as far as Stimson and the development of the atomic bomb was concerned, he knew about it. He wasn't a scientific guy, but he certainly was heavily involved in it. And yet he was more of a proponent of offering the Japanese more of an honorable surrender where they get to keep their emperor. So he was not an advocate of using the bomb. You know, there are a lot of communications that make that question very difficult to answer. Yeah. I think um, he certainly wanted to offer the Japanese the ability to surrender. I think he also believed in use of the bomb. Um, so when the president decided that we're not going to offer that to the Japanese, I don't think he said, well, then we should not use the bomb. Okay. I think, I think he still believe that it was a tool that the United States had developed and that it, dropping it would be necessary to win the war without you know, a massive, massive bloodshed on both sides. Now, as I point out in the book, there's some very prominent people, an admiral and a general, who um, argued shortly thereafter that the Japanese would have surrendered anyway, that they were on the verge of defeat and dropping the bomb was unnecessary. Yeah. That's, this is a, a subject on which numerous books have been written, of course. And um, I try to condense the story and, and tell it as I see it through the register of the partisan dispute. I don't think that this is. Uh, uh, that I'm offering the definitive account of the use of the atomic bomb. No, no, I understand that. Now, actually, when the Japanese surrendered, we did we did allow them to keep their emperor, correct? That's right. And uh, after the second bomb was dropped, the Japanese contacted U.S. officials and informed them that they would be willing to surrender if the emperor could remain on the throne. And once again, the argument was made, Harry Truman called Stimson um, and James Burns into the White House. 
Burns argued that we should not accept conditional surrender. In fact, additional nuclear weapons were being prepared. The target list included four approved target sites. It's unknown whether we would have gone ahead and bombed those. I mean, that's conjecture, but the weapons were being prepared and the sites where the targets had been approved. Stimson argued that we must accept the emperor and uh, let the emperor remain on the throne to achieve peace. And Harry Truman this time agreed with Henry Stimson and a peace was signed, of course, uh, on the USS Missouri, September 2nd, 1945. And that was the end of the war. And what is so incredible is that even after FDR's death that Truman, even though, again, some disagreements here and there, that he really continued in the bipartisan leadership team. He, he kept it together and finished the war. It's just the whole thought of the behind the book of the, I'm going to let you comment on, <laughs> on why you wrote the book, but, you know, you, you see this against, you know, political uh, risks, you know, military risks, all you know, ideological risks, all sorts of things going on. They were all being sacrificed for the better good of the country. And of course, these men were bringing their own, they're bringing themselves to the table, who they were, what they believed in, but they managed to work together to execute this war. And it is a fantastic story. The research you did, Peter, is just amazing. I mean, I've read a lot of books on World War II. And more than once, I saw notes in there that indicated that, that this, is, this was never been written about before. I urge people to find your book, Uniting America, How FDR and Henry Stimson Brought Democrats and Republicans Together to Win World War II. For anybody who's a history buff, uh, or if you're just you know, a serious student of, of history, or you like a really interesting story, I highly recommend it. I did want to make one comment that I noticed, and I thought about it in the beginning when, I, when we first started speaking, that Henry Stimson's father fought in the Civil War. Here you have a man who was born two years after Appomattox, who was instrumentally involved in the development of the atomic bomb ushering in the atomic age. Mm -hmm. And it's in one generation, mm -hmm. civil yeah. war to the atomic bomb. Isn't that uh, and, and the type of sort of international awareness that has to be in place today, you know, in effect. So I want to finish up by just asking you to generally comment. What do you hope the reader will take away? What's the main theme behind what you want the the reader to take away from your book? I found it fascinating the extent to which the divisive politics of the 1930s and 1940 and 41 resemble those of today. You know, FDR was accused of being a socialist and a Marxist because he advocated for so the social security program, which was deemed a, a radical innovation because it sent retirement checks and, and disability checks to Americans. And he was he supported letting workers vote to have a union represent them. 
and he created big projects to help the, the nation out of the uh, Great Depression. And on top of that, there was the whole isolationist dispute. There was a huge amount of hatred and vitriol towards FDR. And to some extent, that resembles the environment in which we find ourselves today. Mm. So to me, the takeaway that I would like the reader to have, to arrive at, is we have done this before. We have bridged our divides before. And we have achieved incredible success when we do. And I think we can do it again. We just need to remember how we did it, take a look at how we did it, and then move forward and try to do it again today. Thank you very much. Very well said. And uh, I, you know, again, I, I, I hope people can pick up this book and read about anything that's about uniting America, man, that, that's what I'm all about that. <laughs> <laughs> it's all order, isn't it? <laughs> it really is. But Peter, I want to thank you so much for being on our podcast. You've been a wonderful guest. And I wish you all the best with your book. And how, how else can people get your book? Well, anywhere books are sold, it's it's going to be widely distributed and it's out there. <laughs> very good. Well, thank you very much again. And I hope you have a great day. Thank you. You too. I appreciate it very much, James. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. You can connect with us on Facebook and YouTube at Your History, Your Story, or on Instagram and Twitter at YH. YS podcast. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.